that it was as good as it gets. Our local lad Stephen Gerrard and Jamie Carragher proved that they could look any of the ghosts of Liverpool's great past in the eye, and pole dancer Jersey Dudek matched even Bruce Spaghetti Legs Grobler with his goal line antics during the penalty shootout. Before I get to the funny stuff, I want to take just a few moments to make some serious points about the so-called beautiful game. The people who run football should be ashamed of themselves for how they've allowed the game to move out of the reach of many working-class people. They are like bloody pickpockets where they steal money to fund the lives of players who are overpaid, overpampered, and in the case of some foreign players, unfortunately, over here. It beats me how parents can afford to take their kids to a match. By the time they've bought their seats, munched a pie, purchased a programme and paid for the petrol, there can't be much change, if any, out of 70 quid, and a lot of the spectators are cheering on their team in a club shirt that costs three times more than it should. I've stopped going to Anfield as a sort of a one-man campaign against the exorbitant prices. Fans need to make the point that they're being ripped off. It's a bloody disgrace, and the sooner the clubs play fair with their supporters, the better. Give the game back to the people. Right, now that I've got that off my chest, let's move on to what this is all about. Funny football stories. Many of the tales I'm about to tell are true. Some are apocryphal, and in others I've changed the name to protect the guilty and to save myself from legal fisticuffs. I will mix in a few jokes with the stories, like the one about the midnight telephone caller Everton Sherman Bill Kenwright received from the fire brigade. Sorry, Mr Kenwright, but uh, Goodison Park's on fire, said the fire brigade chief. Oh no, said Bill. Whatever you do, please try to save the cups. Nobody's there, said the fire chief. The blaze hasn't reached the canteen yet. <laughs> Welcome to football, my ass. <laughs> Tales of the Unexpected Here's a football trivia question for you. Who was the last manager to give a team talk in the old Wembley dressing room? Arsene Wenger? Sir Alec Ferguson? Sir Bobby Robson? Get ready to bow your knee in respect. It was me! I was portraying Mike Bassett, a hapless boss of the England team, in the film of the same name. The bulldozers were parked down Wembley Way, ready to start the demolition of the Twin Towers, and the producers coughed up 60,000 smackers to relay the pitch so that we could stage a game for the cameras. It was the last ever match at the old Wembley, where the ghosts of English football passed have hundreds of tales to tell. I gave my team talk in the same home dressing room where Sir Alf Ramsey rallied the English troops before the victorious battle in the 1966 World Cup final, and where Shanks had stoked up the Liverpool players to get them in the mood to bring the FA Cup to Anfield for the first time the year before. There I was, giving my Churchillian speech to the England team, reading my notes off the back of a packet of fags, and doing my best to sound as inspirational as the likes of Sir Alf, Shanks and Sir Matt Busby all rolled into one. But, being Mike Bassett, it all came out more like a mix of Yossi Hughes, Ken Dodd and a Scouser Alf Garnet. I had great fun making Mike Bassett, which was so successful that we got a transfer to television. The highlight for me, apart from the Wembley experience, was travelling to Brazil to shoot a scene in the Maracana Stadium, right up there with Wembley as the most famous football ground in the world. Kelly, the king agreed to a walk-on part in a key scene shot in the heart of Rio. It was set in a bar 
while the England World Cup challenge was rapidly turning from football to farce. The team captain had been arrested, and my star player was caught out trying to have a bit of how's your father with the statuesque Brazilian beauty, who, surprise, surprise, turned out to be a fella. The British tabloid press were giving me, well, Mike Bassett, terrible stick, and I was looking for the answer to my problems in the bottom of a glass. I'd gotten rat-arsed in the film, was photographed dancing on the bar wearing just a pair of underpants. Not a pretty sight. At this point, Pelly was scripted to walk in, cast his eye over the scene of drunken disorder, and then look at me. His one line was, Oh no! Not the English! Just as he was about to deliver it, I went arse over tit off the bar. Pelly bent double with laughter and could not get his line out. I told him I'd had a stiff one too many, and I wasn't referring to his Viagra TV commercial. So now I can always claim that I appeared at Wembley and the Maracana Stadium, and I sort of, well, played alongside Pelly. A true story that Pelly told us while waiting for the cameras to roll was that he was going to be dropped from the Brazilian World Cup squad before the 1970 finals because he was short-sighted. The manager, Heijo Saldahanio, I don't think I pronounced that right, but it doesn't matter. Now, he was a former journalist, a poet, philosopher, and a one-time revolutionary. Told Pelly he was worried about his eyesight, and that he felt it would be in the team's interest to leave him out of the squad. <laughs> it would have been like dropping Lennon and McCartney from the Beatles. The story was leaked to the press, and so it was the manager who was sacked. Now, how short-sighted could he get? Asked if he was short-sighted, Pelly, the scorer of more than a thousand goals, by the way, replied, A little, but I can see the net, and that's all that matters. Here are some more tales of the unexpected about footballers and their lives. I had the pleasure of meeting Bob Paisley, a legend at Anfield, whose one-man trophy collection has been beaten only by Sir Alec Ferguson. Bob came across as more like a genial uncle than a hard-bitten football manager, and he told this tale of the unexpected with a surprisingly soft Geordie accent. Liverpool were playing Huddersfield in a league match in the late 1940s. Now those were the days when the referee used to leave the match ball on the centre spot at half-time because spectators knew their place and would not dare to put a foot on the sacred turf. We came out and lined up for the start of the second half, and it was Huddersfield to kick off. I can see it now as clearly as if it was yesterday. The great Peter Doherty, wearing the number 10 share for Huddersfield, jogging up and down in anticipation as he waited for his centre-forward to tap the ball to him. The whistle blew, and off we went. Peter was quickly away on one of his magical weaving runs through our defence when suddenly the whistle went again for no apparent reason. We looked up in bewilderment to see the referee and his two linesmen approaching the pitch from the player's tunnel. The ref was blowing an Eddie Calvert trumpet solo on his whistle to get us to stop the game so that he could get onto the pitch. We'd started the match without him, thanks to a joker in the crowd who had a whistle with him. A wonderful tale of the unexpected comes from Kevin Keegan, one of my all-time favourite Liverpool players, who many people on Merseyside have still not forgiven for ducking off, like the Beatles, to Hamburg. England were playing Poland at Wembley in the vital World Cup qualifier in 1973. It was a game we had to win, and the Poles were holding us to a 1-1 draw, with Tomaszewski, the man famously labelled a clown by Brian Clough, playing an absolute blinder in the Polish goal. 
Bobby Moore, who had been dropped, was sitting alongside manager Sir Alf Ramsey on the bench. I was sitting to Bobby's right along with the other substitutes, including my Liverpool teammate Ray Clemens and Derby forward Kevin Hector. The game was into the last few minutes and I couldn't understand why Alf hadn't sent on a substitute to try and nick a winner that would have taken us into the World Cup finals. Alf was never comfortable using substitutes because they'd not been allowed in his playing days and had been introduced only after the 1966 World Cup. Suddenly, with just five minutes to go and under nagging pressure from Bobby Moore, Alf finally decided he should send on a sub. Kevin, get stripped, he ordered. That was the moment when the drama on the bench turned to farce. Ray Clemens helped me off with my tracksuit bottoms, but he was so eager that he dragged me short down to my knees. While I was suffering this overexposure, I became even further embarrassed when Alf made it clear he meant Kevin Hector, not me. By the time the other Kevin got on, there were just a hundred seconds left, the shortest England debut on record. What's not so funny is that England went out of the World Cup, Alf eventually lost his job, and the clown was hailed as a hero at home in Poland. We had been well and truly Polished off. Kevin Keegan was back at Wembley a few months later with Liverpool, and got involved in an astonishing punch-up with lead skipper Billy Bremner in the Charity Shield match. In reflective mood, some years later, Kevin recalled, I allowed myself to be provoked by the infamous Leeds tactics. First, an off-the-ball whack from Johnny Giles, followed soon after by the crafty dig from Bremner that brought on the red mist of temper. I went after Bremner, and we were both ordered off after swapping wildly aimed punches. Neither Billy nor I could explain why, as we walked off, we both pulled off our shirts in disgust. The establishment was more upset by the disrespectful...